0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. Alas, this is the final episode of my series on World War II, and I think it is profoundly fitting as the bookend for this fun project. Hey, this is Eric. Uproarious celebrations full of shouts, cheers, and confetti broke out in New York City, San Francisco, and other places about the United States as the people of this country heard the announcement that the Japanese had formally surrendered. But this amazing news was processed quite differently by Americans in other parts of the world. Those in POW camps, for instance, and in prison camps found it difficult to shout, to dance, or to throw confetti into the air. Instead, they simply fell to their knees and in silence, with tears streaming down their cheeks, gave thanks to God. Most of us wish we had the cheering and dancing variety of celebration for all our future breakthroughs, but often the Christian life enjoys a very different sort of victory party, a silent one, full of tears of thanksgiving and deep groans of gratitude. Don't be fooled by all the hoopla. It is these silent, solemn triumphs that are truly the most exquisite kinds of victory parties to enjoy. Please note that we have all 93 episodes in this series organized for you at Ellersley.com forward slash daily. Thank you so much for your support throughout this past year as I delivered this series. I have never received more feedback on anything I have ever done. It was very timely for the year 2020. In World War II, the good guys won. I pray the same for this hour in history. So today is <clears throat> the end of something uh, rather significant in my life, and I know for many of you, you've, you've sort of bonded, as I have, with this World War II series. It's been very, very special. Some just great moments in it of just profound uh, ideas of how they parallel, World War II parallels with what exactly is unfolding today in our world. And uh, <clears throat> so it's, I think it's an appropriately titled uh, message, A Solemn Triumph. Uh, anytime you make it 93 uh, episodes into something, we'll call that a triumph. Uh, this is, But to make it through the entire World War was uh, quite a process. I had someone uh, telling me that I needed to at least get to 100, and I agree. I mean, I'm a round numbers guy. I don't like ending on 93, but uh, and he even gave me some good proposals uh, of what I could add in. He's like, hey, you're, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you'd have to rewind the clock just a little. But uh, as of right now, I don't have any plans of continuing this. This is going to be uh, the final <coughs> bookend. A Solemn Triumph. Job 42.10 And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. It's an interesting triumph that you're going to see at the end of the book of Job and yet it's not the kind of triumph that you jump up and down hoot and holler about. Job has lost a great deal in his life and he's gone through a great deal of suffering. And the ending of suffering, the ending of a season of suffering is it's a different sort of ending. It's it's not the confetti sort of ending. Because in Job's life and just just imagine his children were lost in this season. It's it's an extreme anguish that he went through. And now at the end, we see the triumph. There it is. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Yay. Hey, come on, let's get the confetti going. And yet you could almost see Job saying, no confetti, please. Uh, it's a solemn triumph. And that's what I'm trying to bring out is there's this there's this version of triumph that I am very, very familiar with. Have you ever had it where you desire something or you anticipate something and you can almost taste it? And if it happens right at this exact moment, you would hoot, you would holler, you would shout, you would dance, you would do the jig, you would hug people, you would kiss people you don't know. You don't care because it happened. But then It doesn't happen that way, and you have years of waiting for it, and then, guess what? It happens. It's funny how it mellows you in that process, and so now the the jubilant uh, dance, uh, the shout, is tempered, and it becomes a, a tear streaming down the cheek, a deep breath, almost like a collapse into your knees before the couch and planting your face in your hands and weeping. Well, that's a strange way to celebrate, but it is a relief of a pressure that has been in your life for years. It's hard to describe unless you've gone through it. I almost feel like that's a summation of my life. Like, am I sharing my biography today? A solemn triumph? I feel like if I could say it in the depths of my being, I feel like My life has proven the triumph of Jesus Christ. The enemy has tried to take me out. He's tried to destroy me so many times over. He's tried to discourage me and say, give up. And I'm still standing. It's a triumph. But why is it that it's not a confetti sort of triumph? (laughs) Because first of all, I'm still right smack in the middle of the battle. This isn't yet done. And there's a certain solemnity to this process that we go through as Christians. We don't oftentimes get to taste of the confetti version of triumph. We do, you know, it happens, but it's, it's rare. The solemn triumph is something that we are more familiar with. Now, when we enter into the heavenly kingdom, I have no idea what it's going to be like. If that's going to be a solemn triumph where we all just sort of fall on our faces and we weep, or if we dance I I don't know. That's a really good question because I'm so used to the solemn triumph, I almost don't know how the other one works, the confetti, the kiss everyone around you. I mean, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, Hugging, high fives. I I remember when the, uh, the Broncos finally won a Super Bowl, I was in this gathering where I knew like three people there, and it was this huge Bronco party. And uh, I was so excited that I hugged people I didn't even know. And they hugged me. It was, a, it was a, an exchange. You know, everyone was just like, you know what, you throw it all to the wind. The Broncos just won the Super Bowl. You know, all of the normal uh, rules of society are gone. You know, now we just celebrate. And that's rare, though. Okay, and it took the Broncos winning the Super Bowl to, to get me to behave that way. So... On the screen, if you're getting this via podcast, it says the adoption. Now, I've had four different children adopted, but there's one adoption that stands out to me, and its length of time is not altogether dissimilar from the length of time in World War II. In other words, it was a long stretch of time of great agony, times where the pain was so acute that I didn't quite know if humans could live long with that much pain with that much weight upon their shoulders. There was so much illegal activity that was taking place. It seemed like it was a conspiracy. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it seemed like it was a conspiracy to destroy Leslie and I and this ministry. And there's, it's a deep well for me to go into it. It was like a plot hatched to see if it could snuff us out. But it involved two little children down in Haiti. And it was malevolent, it was evil, but the children were precious, and they were caught in it. And I still remember, you know, there were, there were moments along the way which were so challenging, so difficult, so many moments. I'd say at least five moments in the process where it was absolutely impossible. There was no more light shining. You know how you at least usually have a sliver of light? Five different times when the door shut, and God was testing my soul. And I stood, and I said, I believe in my God, that He has started something, He will bring it to completion. I refuse to despair. And so you can, of course, you guys could see the end. I couldn't in the moment. Those two did come home. The impossible did happen. But it's interesting because when we finally got, I think it was a text or a phone call, I don't remember how it came in. Maybe it was an email. I just remember where I was. We were driving towards Branson as a family. And I remember Leslie just looks over at me in the car and says, they're coming home. No confetti in this moment. Silence. Silence. What do you say? I've been waiting for this moment, and I'm supposed to jump. I'm supposed to leap, but it has been delayed so long. The pain has been so acute, and I don't even know if I could call it relief yet. I, don't, I can't even process I, it's just a stillness where there's been a war. Just suddenly, it's quiet. And usually tears are what begin to ebb in those moments, not shouts. And it's interesting because I had always envisioned the shout, and that's, it sort of bothers me. I want to shout. I want to dance. I want to stop the car and run around it seven times. And I want to show my kids how to celebrate. And yet they're sort of seeing Daddy celebrate, but they're seeing what a Christian oftentimes goes through. That this isn't the end for us. We're in the midst of a war. And it is a war-torn world. And our little triumphs, which are gigantic, they really are, are sometimes even hard to swallow and know how to appropriate because they are so delayed oftentimes in coming. Jeremiah 31, 8 through 10 I don't know, it sort of summarizes this. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child. Together a great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping. Wait, 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 this is like a triumph here. They shall come with weeping and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. And I sort of have felt that in my life, that I'm gathered together by this great shepherd, and he's leading me but I come forth with weeping and supplications out of my captivity. You know, it's one of those types of things. That doesn't make any sense. Why am I? I'm being freed, but why is it that it's such a somber thing? It's not somber in a negative sense. It's amazing, but it isn't full of triumphant shouts and dancing. The 48 months... So uh, there's a few around here in the staff of Ellerslie that I don't think we've officially titled it, but maybe this is the official titling of it, the 48 months. I'm going to say roughly 48 months. Technically, I don't think we counted. When you're in the midst of a trial, oftentimes, you know, when you're in a prison cell, you'll make your marks on the wall and you'll count everything. We didn't know we were going to go, you know, when you go into a prison cell, you know you're going into a prison cell. When you're going into it the 48 months, you don't know you're going into the 48 months. You didn't know to start checking off the months. And so there's a few pieces of data that I don't know are going to be fully accurate. They're just close, okay? Like 48 months. We usually just say four years. It was about four years. In fact, it probably was even longer, but that we were in that prison cell. We just didn't know it. So somewhere around that time, we started, you know, putting the, the chalk marks on the prison wall. But it was a season here at Ellerslie for our team where extenuating circumstances, bizarre things, various things happened that strangulated our financial cash flow. And so out of those 48 months, we had, and this is a rough estimate, around 39 to 40 of those months, about a week before the first of the month where is where most of our expenses are, payroll to start out the month. We didn't have enough money to cover it. Now, if you've ever gone through that once in your life, that's hard. Even if you're just a single person and you don't have money to pay your mortgage the next month, that's hard. But when you run an organization, the weight of it is excruciating, and you feel it because you love the people that it affects if you don't have the resource. And so here's what I can say. I, Eric Ludi, have witnessed the faithfulness of God. That was an excruciating 48-month stretch. And it was something that I would never wish to repeat. However, multiple times throughout it, we as a staff got together and rejoiced. We praised God for the difficulties because we knew those difficulties were working a great depth of character in us. And that God was pruning us so that we could bear more fruit. I believe, and I, I'm just going to give a commendation to my team here at Ellerslie to say that there was never a buckling, there was only a rejoicing. But to call it easy would be a misnomer. It was not easy, and it usually isn't. I don't know, I could just remove the word usually, it just isn't. The sufferings and the trials we go through, when Jesus was on the cross, he really felt pain. And we know that God can do all things, right? So why doesn't he remove the difficulty of hanging on the cross? It's like, if he's going to call me to hang on a cross, can't he numb me so I don't feel it? But there's something in the feeling and overcoming the feeling with faith that is the great triumph, that we can experience pain and difficulty and yet not forsake our god in the midst of it allah job job really did feel the loss the pain both physical and emotional and psychological this was torment and yet in the midst of it he bowed down and worshiped god and when it's all said and done it may not be a confetti sort of celebration But there is a triumph. And this is something I know that many of us in here, because I know many of you in here, have gone through this. You understand it. The hoots and the hollers are not as familiar to us as the tear down the cheek. (laughs) And yet, I don't want to trade it out. I actually think we have something very, very precious in the kingdom of heaven. And that those tears in the moment of triumph are worth far more than a jig and a dance and a hoot and a holler. I'm not saying that I wouldn't love to have a few more confetti sort of triumphant moments, but sometimes that waiting is working something far greater than just an immediate victory. So, you know, as I'm thinking about finishing up World War II, because you could say, what does this have to do with World War II? Well, (laughs) if you were fighting in World War II, if you were a POW in World War II, which I'm going to talk about one who is a POW in World War II, the end of World War II was not a celebration in the streets of New York with confetti. It was exactly as I'm describing. And this story, for Leslie and I, we've always called it a solemn triumph. That's why you see me naming this. And so when I was looking through it, I could not find uh, evidence not seen in a Kindle form so I could just copy and paste. So I had to type this in. So I had to order the book because we have the audio book of it. That's how I've always listened to it. So I had to order the book, get it shipped here fast so I could type this in for this morning. But it's interesting because I was expecting to see the word solemn triumph uh, in the book. Isn't that weird? It's like you call something that, and I'm always referring to Darlene Dibler-Rose. Leslie is always understanding exactly what I mean. It's like this is a solemn triumph. And And we're we're both talking about Darlene Dibler, and yet the words aren't even in the text, which sort of bothers me. It's like, where did that come from? So somehow, you know, we invented our own term in the process. But this encapsulates something to me that is deeply moving. First of all, if you have never read the book Evidence Not Seen, which is a great World War II drama, it's not really about World War II, it's about Jesus Christ and his faithfulness, it's, uh, it's an incredible story, but she is in Indonesia as a missionary with her husband, Russell, and they are going, I mean, these are, this is a dangerous place to be anyways, and they're risking their life even to share Jesus in this, this place, and Russell is going to get extremely sick just trying to forge a path in and through the uh, dense uh, uh, unknown of Indonesia, and Uh, the Japanese are going to take the island in the Pacific uh, during World War II, and they're going to be put into concentration camps, if you could say it that way. And her husband, Russell, is going to die in the concentration camp, a prison camp. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. And she's going to survive and write this book, but her story is, oh, wow. Uh, To see the faithfulness of God, but to see her steadfastness of soul... What she is going to go through, I, I've i never gone through captivity on the island of Indonesia. Never done that. But I feel like I know her story. And any of us that have suffered long standing in faith feel like we've been there. I know that prison camp. I know that guard that's yelling at me. Yet it wasn't that guard. It was something else in my life that was attempting to beat me down and diminish me and say, give up. It's like the same storyline, but different characters and different uh, environments, different context, but the exact same story that we all go through as Christians. So uh, I would highly encourage you to read the book Evidence Not Seen by Darlene Dibler-Rose. It actually is possibly one of the greatest biographies ever written. So we're going to go back to 1941. Uh, Japanese, the J- Japan's going to bomb Pearl Harbor. And so this is going to reverberate through the world. But if you're in the Pacific, you recognize you're suddenly threatened. And because the Japanese are ready for war and they are, they're starting to take territory. And so they, this missionary team that Darlene Dibler, uh and her husband are in, in Indonesia, are going to be listening to Filipino radio, and they're going to hear about the march of the Japanese coming towards them. And so you could just imagine what that's like. And there's this one scene in the beginning, which I don't know if this was in early 19, or late 1941, early 1942. I didn't, didn't look hard enough to figure out the exact date. Uh, sorry, my spacing on the picture and the, her name are off. I, I don't know how that happened. Sorry, guys, that's, I feel terrible about that. Uh, But this is what Darlene said. How do you speak courage into the hearts of people when you have nothing but defeat to report? I don't know. Even that line is very interesting for me because what we are facing today in America is a very unique situation where, for instance, all of you in the body of Christ need hope right now. My wife needs hope, my kids need hope. And What do you say to people when you feel like your world is crumbling around you and you feel like good guys are being silent and bad guys are getting noisier all the time? It must be a a similar type of phenomenon to this. Let me read that first line again. How do you speak courage into the hearts of people when you have nothing but defeat to report? It would be tough being a newsman in the Philippines in this exact hour. Yet every broadcast from the Manila newscaster held overtones of hope hope for a miracle that would turn the advancing victorious hordes of the enemy. I can hear it now, and a lump rises in my throat, the last transmission. I'm here in our building in the center of the city. The bombs are falling all around us. Background noises of planes and explosions emphasize his statement. I'm going to have to close down. A sob interrupted his delivery. Then all of a sudden, we heard him shout, Come on, America! The awful silence that followed, pregnant with horror, left us sobbing. Yes, come on, America. Dear God, have mercy. Uh, All right, that happened a long time ago, but why does it feel like it's right now? Isn't that just interesting? I mean, that is like a parallel with what we are going through right now. Come on, America. You felt that? Come on, we're better than this. We know that that's a lie. Do not forsake this country and give it over into the hands of the evil. Do not do this. And yet you're going to see the ramifications of an America at this exact hour which has been pacifistic and submissive to evil. It has been under the thumb of the Great Depression and as a result has been thinking about themselves for a long time. And they're not prepared to immediately respond. And as a result, the Philippines is going to fall. And as a result, what's going to happen with Darlene Dibler and her husband, Russell, is going to unfold. So 1945, we're going to skip the whole story, which is desperate, difficult. She's actually going to be uh, uh, scheduled for execution because they consider her a, um, what was it, a spy. Uh, And She was falsely accused by this guy saying that she had some kind of ham radio. And so they give sort of a a ridiculous, their judicial system was a little sketchy. And so they're bringing her in for execution. I think they were going to, you know, they had a long sword and they had her on her knees, you know, one of those classic Japanese executions. And she's just submitting herself to God. And in that moment, some crisis out in the parking lot happens. The guy with the sword drops it and runs out. And she just left in there, and they never killed her. And so her story is just spectacular. That's all I can say. It's spectacular, and I am so moved by her faith in the midst of impossible circumstances. There was no hope for her, none, and yet she clung to Jesus Christ in such a magnificent way. So in 1945, they are the the Japanese have been telling them that the American, uh, that they have defeated the American Navy. Uh, they they said it once, multiple years earlier. It's like we defeated your navy, and then a couple months later they said we defeated your navy. And then she was like, Wait a minute, I thought you already defeated our navy. And then a few months later we defeated your navy. And then after the fourth time she decided our navy must be pretty impressive because it keeps coming back to life. In other words, if you think that's defeat, we must they must be scared if they keep trying to tell us and convince us that our navy is defeated. There must be hope out there. So you see them just grasping, holding on to, they have, they're not connected with the outside world at all. They have no idea what's happened, and they're under the duress of the Japanese. I mean, the, the difficulties are so extreme for uh, these, the, these people that are un, in this situation. Their life has been extremely hard, not just hard, extremely hard. They've been surviving. Many of them have died that are around them. So, August 1945 slipped away. Now, for those of you that know VJ Day, it was August 15th. So, we have, VJ Day has already happened, and yet they haven't seen the impact of it. They don't even know that it's happened, right? So, August 1945 slipped away. Then the long-awaited day came. Most of us were thinking when asked to assemble in the large open field where the memorial service had taken place, they're going to tell us we're going to be moved Commander Yamaji, who was over their prison camp, and the second in command appeared in full dress uniform. Mr. Yamaji informed us that his imperial Highness, the Emperor Hirohito, had announced by radio that the war was over and Japan had accepted the terms of the Potsdam declaration for the unconditional surrender. I have seen photos of the wild victory celebrations that took place in New York, San Francisco, and similar places when the announcement of VJ Day was broadcast to the nation. Crowds singing, dancing, drinking, and kissing, whomever, in the broad, confetti-filled, brightly lit streets. It wasn't like that in Kampala. We were not safe on home soil, nor outside the barbed wire, nor half a world away from the battlefields. Some still wet with the blood of fathers or sons or brothers. We were still within our prison confines, still separated from, from, sorry guys, I typed this in quick this morning, from our families. We had nearly four years behind us of total isolation from the rest of the world, wondering how that world had changed and who of our loved ones would be left. There was not even a conquering soldier in sight who had come to set us free, whom we could thank, whose hands we could kiss and wet with our tears of gladness. The full import of what we had just heard would come later. It was a silent celebration of tears rolling down gaunt faces, burned deeply while laboring in the sun's, sun on roads, in rice fields, in pig pens, on coolie lines, loading and unloading trucks, emptying septic tanks, faces, faces on which sorrow and suffering had etched their deep lines. For ours had been a silent war of waiting, and we had measured courage in simple endurance. There was no riotous drinking, there, was, there were no happy songs filling in the air interspersed with shouts of victory. There was no wild cavorting about, just a quiet moving to and for and from among the people to clasp hands, to embrace, to whisper thank yous to those with whom friendship had been pledged in a mingling of blood, sweat, and many tears. Perhaps it is just as well that the scenes never, never were photographed. Few could understand or appreciate the beauty or poignancy of our victory celebration." Silent war of waiting. I don't know exactly what you guys are going through personally in your lives. I know what we're going through as a nation. And we have a war of our own, don't we? Because we live in a world that is unstable and its future unknown. And things are hanging in the balance. The question is how are we appropriating? these circumstances. When you're in a time of world war, and especially in the early years when they had no idea if victory was actually plausible, they just knew they had to fight. It's a very similar situation we find ourselves in as Christians right now. We see a very defined evil that has shown its hand and revealed itself. Not, I mean, most of us knew it was there the whole time, but it has revealed itself publicly, and it is mocking those that hold the truth. There was someone I I saw quoted, I think it was yesterday, that here was the quote, I'm a liberal. I can say whatever I want. Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad we're being honest now. That's exactly right. You see, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you are censored. You have nothing to say. Nothing to say here. No input is allowed. And we feel it. We feel that marginalization at a very heightened level. We feel the diminishment and we feel the threat. Are you going to stand with the truth or are you going to get in line? How we handle these moments define our souls. This is our hour to be a darling diabler in the midst of the darkest hour and yes if that evil is defeated it may not be a victory celebration of hoots and hollers it might just be a single tear streaming down our cheek and we all just sort of hug each other and we fall to our knees and we don't even know what to pray for 20 minutes because we're struggling to find words oh it's gratefulness don't get me wrong it's worship, it's adoration, but it's also the end of a long struggle. That's why I say I'm not exactly sure what it's like when we meet Jesus face to face and we finally recognize that this battle is over. And he says, you can set down your sword. I, I don't know, because I've never tasted it, guys. <laughs> I've dreamt of it. But for most of us, we think of jubilant celebration, I don't know. Maybe it will be. I mean, if it all melts away and we are made whole and we, we, we see the victory, maybe all of it just melts and we can exhibit the dance, the David dance, you know, where we're just sort of twirling around with the, you know, the Jewish arms up like this. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that's going to be like. But Lord, haste the day when our faith will be made sight and the skies will be rolled back as a scroll. Oh, do I desire it. But in the meantime, I cherish our, our form of celebration. I do. And I'm not diminishing the fact that there can be hoots and hollers, and I think God delights in that too, and so I'm not trying to make those less spiritual. I'm just saying that it's not abnormal for us as Christians to have the form of celebration that is a little quieter. And a little more docile, not because we want it that way, but because of the pain that is associated with it. If you had lost three sons in World War II, and then you find out that World War II is finally ended, how do you respond? Do you dance around the living room, or do you fall down on your knees, cling to that picture of those three, and cry? what a strange thing to do in your celebration. And yet there's pain intermingled with the victory, a solemn triumph. The silent war of waiting. So here's the quote that has really stood out to me. Darlene Dibler Rose says, It was a silent celebration of tears rolling down gaunt faces, faces on which sorrow and suffering had etched their deep lines. For ours had been a silent war of waiting, and we had measured courage in simple endurance. See, on the battlefield there's certain measurements for courage. It's like being able to jump out of your trench and rush towards no man's land and jump over the barbed wire into enemy territory. That's craziness because the enemy has you, you know, has a line on you. I mean, come on, who's going to do that? That's why it's called courage. Courage and craziness are not that far removed from each other, but it's it's craziness with a purpose. It's craziness that's sacrificial. It's, it's not just random, hey, I'm going to hop out of a plane and just plop to the ground. It is I'm going to hop out of a plane and land in enemy territory so I can help win a war. What we are doing and what, what is known as courageous in all sorts of uh, different elements of life, like battle, is to stand up when it's the hardest moment and move forward. Well, when you're in a prison camp, the measurement of courage is just different. Because you, you have no no man's land. You have no trench to jump out of. You don't have a gun. You, what do you, what's courage there? I love this statement. We had measured courage in simple endurance. Like I said, I can't speak for your soul. I can't give a state of the union for your soul. I can only give a state of the union for my soul. And I always have hope. You talk to Eric and I'm always going to give you the Pollyanna uh, silver lining. Always, because that's what I'm built for. I'm built to encourage. I'm built to strengthen and to hearten. The worst could be happening, and I'm going to find a reason to rejoice. First of all, because God tells me to, but second of all, because that's what I really see. I see God seated on his throne, I see all things beneath his feet, I see him coming again in the clouds, I see the victory even before it happens. That's what faith is, isn't it? Doesn't everyone see this? However, I can't give the state of the soul for you or the state of the union for your soul. However, I can guess that some of you just need to hear, keep going. Don't let go. Courage right now in your soul might not be to grab your gun, jump out of a trench, and run towards the enemy. It might not be to get behind a microphone and testify that you're a whistleblower, and you witness some fraudulent activities. It might not be that you run for Congress. It might be that you simply endure in your current situation, and you believe. You believe that God is able. You will not stop holding on in faith to your God, who has led you this far, and He will not leave you now. Sometimes the measurement that we have of our spiritual life and our courage is not found in doing big things. It's doing the small things of the soul well. When I talk with men, that's how I'm going to teach them. I'm going to say it's not just that the man is going to be measured by going off to war and dying. I mean, it's impressive. But a man is going to be measured based on how he handles the individual thought that is attempting to come into his mind. And if he holds his ground and says, I will not let that thought in. You see, we are measured by very small movements of the soul because those small movements are going to define the big actions of our life. And so if we don't rise up heroically to handle our soul in that waiting season, if, if you were around Ellerslie in the past few years, you would have heard me begin to teach on this idea of suffering and then another idea called long-suffering. I understood suffering. I've understood suffering for a long time in my life, but I didn't realize the distinction of that word long being put in front of suffering. Why would that matter? Isn't that the same thing? Well, when you get long-suffering and you're going through a situation that demands long-suffering where the time just keeps God, it's reasonable that you would answer my prayer. You've always answered it by now, okay? There's sort of an expiration of how long a person can wait. And I think it went off a couple hours ago, a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, a couple years ago. God, how does someone keep going? Same way you went through the shorter season. I want to teach you something. It's a gift of grace. And long-suffering is very acute and extremely challenging to the soul, but it is exquisite in its results. The fruit that comes out of long-suffering cannot be gained by any human. It is a supernatural result. Remember the the fruit that was coming out of the land of promise? And this territory right here, this this territory which we could just call suffering right there. Imagine if the land of promise was called the the territory of suffering. What kind of fruit is coming out of there? Remember those guys carrying out a cluster of grapes? Took two of them to carry it out. That's the kind of fruit we can get in that land. But to go into that land means battle. It means war. It means faith step after faith step after faith step. Don't stop now. Let's keep going, men. But we've we've eliminated so many of these giants, but there's still more. Let's keep going, guys. Oh, that's taxing. And yet that's the measurement of the nation of Israel. How are they going to respond? They've been given an assignment. We've been given the highest calling anyone has ever received. We get to carry the name of Jesus Christ into this world. Let's do it, and let's do it well. The importance of simple endurance. To keep going, to not stop. If you're treading water, just keep treading. But I've been doing it for days. You've ever, there's no worse kind of movie than the, the movie where people are lost at sea, hanging onto the side of a boat with sharks swimming around their legs. Right? That's a hard time to not give up. I've, I've unfortunately studied too many stories of of this. I don't know why. I always seem to come across stories like that. And there's two different types of people in those situations. There's people that actually will give up. They will give up. They will not just continue to live because it's too hard. I understand it. Psychologically, it just is, you got the sun blazing down and you got your friends, you know, screaming, going, ah, this is hard. And and then you have the people that are like, we're not going to make it. They're not coming back. And then you have the other guy, it's like, they are coming back. Shut that guy up. Which one are we in the midst of this trial? I want to be the guy preaching out there going, guys, there's hope. And even if the sharks are swimming around my life, they're around you, Looney, right now. Praise God, if he gets me, I know where I'm going. But if he gets you, I'm not so certain if you're going to the right place. In other words, how am I built for the hardest challenges? I feel like the staff at Ellerslie is built for right now. I believe we are built for difficulty. Why? Because of what we've walked through. The 48 months is just one of our stories, by the way. That's, that, uh, we, could, we could create quite the, the, the story uh, list here. But why did God give us those months? So that we'd be fit for these months right here. 2020 was like a dream year for Ellerslie. Why? Because we were able to laugh and rejoice throughout all of that. Well, how did we do that? because we had 48 months before that where we were learning to rejoice in situations as far as we were concerned were far more difficult than what we went through this year. Praise God for how He builds us. Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And let us not grow weary while doing good, For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So right now, in your individual life, but I also look at it as the church and I look at it as our nation. There's a King Kong-sized battle right now, and this is not the time to stop treading water. This is not the time to stop praying, saying, well, you know, our prayers are obviously not doing any good. No, 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 no. How many times could Darlene have said, God obviously has forsaken me? One year in a prison camp and he has not even come through with a pamphlet from the skies to remind me that, you know, the Americans are doing something, that there's some hope. I don't care what it looks like. Hold on. Truth always wins. Light is greater than darkness. Remember the truth in this hour. Hosea 6:11 I love this line. Oh also O Judah a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. I like this thought. A, a harvest is appointed to you. That's like God speaking to us right now. A harvest is appointed to you. You see what is most of us when we look at the landscape of our culture right now. We're all in America. And we see the trajectory of America, which isn't good. You know, when my kids say, Daddy, what's going to happen? You know, I I don't know what's going to happen with our culture, but I do know that uh, the remnant of Jesus Christ is going to be awakened and sharpened like a pencil, and we're going to be one pain in the neck to the enemy, and I like that. It's like a special forces unit. It might be small at first, but you know what? We're going to see God get his due. You see, my mindset isn't on a coming persecution. That's just the wrong thing. It's on a coming harvest. Why why would I focus on the persecution? That's like going to the gym and focusing on the pain instead of the muscular growth. Who goes to the gym to focus on pain? You focus on what you get out of the pain. But who in the right mind is going to go for a run and think about lactic acid the entire time and how painful it is and how miserable it is to run? You're going to think about the fact that your cardiovascular system is getting stronger and you're getting oxygen into your body. You're getting good circulation through your body and you're going to be healthier today. You're going to be sharper mentally. You're going to be more fit for the task at hand in this life. Watch out, devil. The reason we go through difficulty and pain is to get stronger And so if there is a good exercise season, we'll call it persecution, right? Exercise season, we come out stronger. So who should fear that? Not us. This is what the enemy should dread. It should really bother him when we smile at the exercise season. He's like, persecution's coming your way. And we're like, great, looking forward to it. Well, that's not what he's looking for. He wants discouragement. He wants depression. He wants us to ball up and curl up into a a ball and give up. Oh, no. This is our hour as the saints of God. Now, by the way, I also am not saying, I'm not trying to forecast that there's a season of great persecution coming. There will be eventually. I don't know if this is that time as the Bible would describe it. There's going to be persecution always. But whether or not it's the great ending of it all, I'm not going to say that. I am going to say that right now, God can steer this country, as He's done many times, away from evil and towards righteousness. So I'm going to hold on to that, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said they're not going to bend their knee. Well, then you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace and die. Well, our God can save us. But even if He didn't, even if our God doesn't save us from the fiery furnace... We are not bending our knee. Good old-fashioned faith. O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you. A time for harvest has come. So if you just study harvest in the New Testament, you're going to recognize that Jesus is going to holler about a harvest quite often. There seems to be something out there. That he's saying is ready, and he has readied it. But what he's short on is workers. So pray that those workers will be raised up. A time for the harvest has come. What if we have difficulty in this world? Sure. But a great harvest is ready to come in. Would you be willing to live in a harder time, in order to be a part of the greatest movement of grace this world has ever seen? Hmm. Or you could live in an easier time and not have the grace and just sort of have one of those bland existences on earth. Have you ever watched a movie that is rather bland, doesn't have a lot of tension, and doesn't keep you on the edge of your seat and is just sort of like uh, dull, boring? Who wants to live in that life, right? Actually, you want to be situated at such a time where it matters, where your life counts. I mean, maybe it's just Eric. I've only lived in one body, and so I can't actually know what's going on inside of everyone. However, I desire to live a life that matters, always have. I don't want to just waste my life. I want to treat it as sacred. I got one of them. I want to use it well. And if I had the privilege of living in one of the most significant times in all of history, I would consider it an honor, not a pain in the neck. Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Harvest talk. Though many of us in here have sowed in tears, there's a promise. We will reap with joy. This is a guarantee in the kingdom of heaven. And so, even if... We are going to walk through things that the rest of the world that has forsaken God doesn't need to carry in this life. We will reap something so grand in the next life. But here's the other thing it's even in this life, and I don't want to diminish that, that when we reap in tears in this life, I'm here as a personal testimony. Even though the difficulties don't ever seem to subside, and they're always just sort of there knocking, saying, Eric, you need to pay attention to me. I'm a difficulty. That there is a real joy that can be gained even in the here and now. It's available to us. It's sort of like the throne room of grace is just open, and God's like saying, hey, I know you're going through a challenge, but I've got truckloads of joy for you right here. Do you want it? I mean, who would decline that? Hey, Eric, I also have a whole bunch of peace for you. I've got a whole bunch of patience in there. I've got a whole bunch of love. Have at it. We have everything we need for life and godliness. It's been made available to us in Christ Jesus. We are in a time of war. Not altogether different than World War I, World War II. You could go through any war and you're going to recognize a parallel. Because war does parallel with the spiritual life. It's a very real war. Our battle is not against physical enemies, but against spiritual ones, which causes us to sometimes miss it, and we don't see what is really happening. But just like war, it oftentimes can be laborious and difficult, and it can stretch out, as we see in World War I and World War II, for extremely long periods of time to the point where no one would have estimated that. No one in the beginning of World War I would have ever guessed a war that would have lasted four years. No one had that in mind. And then at the beginning of World War II, no one even wanted a war, let alone one that would last for five or six years. And so as a result, what you see is a long-suffering that is hard to understand what we go through as Christians unless you stare at what they went through in those times. It's like, wow, that is what it's like. Where you see this enemy and you even know that enemy's going down. There was a certain turning point in the war where you knew Hitler couldn't have end up winning in the end, but guess what? You still have to fight him the whole time. He's not gonna end up in the long run winning, but you still have to give up your life. You have to spend your sons and your brothers. And your father to this battle. Come on. If he's going to lose in the end, anyways, why does he just surrender now? Uh huh. How many of us have had that thought? Satan, if you're going to lose, give up. Mm hmm. That just doesn't happen. And then what's funny is the same guy who won't give up tells us that we should give up. You know, the devil's like, you should give up. We're not giving up, we are the victors. We're the ones that are going to see victory in the end. So let's get used to it. Let's fight. Let's fight on. Simple endurance. The silent war of waiting. And even though what we have right now might be more of the solemn triumph, I wouldn't doubt that it's going to turn into a jig and a dance somewhere along the line, even if that line ends in heaven. Uh, And that's where we finally get our jig out and the confetti falls. Do you think they have confetti in heaven? I wonder, that's an interesting thought. Confetti. Uh, Father, thank you for your ways. Thank you for your triumph. The enemy is defeated. It is finished. Lord, Lord, You have carried those of us in this room through many trials and challenges. And yes, there are likely many more to come. But Lord, we resolve even now to walk through those with joy, with your triumph. And we ask that you would make us stronger and more valiant and more courageous and more bold and more loving and more kind and more like you in and through every trial we face. Lord, bring in your harvest. Raise up workers. Raise up reapers for such an hour as this. Stir your church unto action. Lord, this is not the time to despair. This is the time to anticipate. To anticipate our God to move. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen.